Hello, I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today, remembering Harvey Picar, who died this past week. Harvey was a guy who thought so-called ordinary people had stories worth telling, and he told his in a series of comic books called American Splendor. It was illustrated by well-known artists like Robert Crumb, Joe Sacco, and Dean Haspiel, and it was the very opposite of a superhero comic. There was nothing larger than life, no fancy plots, just the everyday observations and tribulations of a working guy in Cleveland, Ohio. That's where Harvey made his living as a file clerk. But he was also a self-educated man of letters and a jazz critic whose essays appeared in The Village Voice and other publications. Harvey achieved a modest amount of notoriety in the 1980s with his appearances on The David Letterman Show. And then, in 2003, American Splendor was made into a movie, critically acclaimed one at that. But despite the unexpected fame, Harvey stayed true to his nature, working stiff with an unromantic, even bleak outlook on life. I spoke to Harvey Picar in 2006, and we're going to hear that interview right after we listen to one of his radio commentaries for WKSU in Ohio. Every night it's the same thing. I roll over and look at the clock. It's usually about 1.30 a.m. Ah, I feel luxuriously relaxed and I know that's going to be as good as it gets. I drift off and wake again at 4.30, 15 minutes before I got to get up. This is my low point seven days a week. I lie awake and think, why bother going through the same routine? In the long run, we're all dead anyway. All the stuff we work so hard at becomes meaningless, a joke even. Then I force myself out of bed and into the bathroom to shave and brush my teeth while all the mundane stuff I have to do hits me at once. Go to work, pay bills, write a zillion reviews and articles and comic book stories. I have to supplement my file clerk's income so I can pay for my foster daughter's braces. I take my pills to control the afflictions I've accumulated during 60 years of life. Downstairs, during my daily bowl of cornflakes, milk, and banana, I watch my two cats. The young one's full of energy, but the eight-year-old is already jaded. Once she scampered around, but now she sits in a warm place and wants to be left alone. She just snarls at the young one. Harvey Picard, thanks for dropping in. My pleasure. You know, despite the fact that most of your work doesn't give people a lot of um, consolation to hold on to, you know, it's really about how tough life is. In fact, the motto might be, life is hard and then you die. People like you. They like your stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, the people that come up and introduce themselves to me always tell me they like my work and shake my hand and stuff and tell me how they, you know, this or that story they really identified with because they had a similar experience. And uh, I don't I don't generally have people coming up to me and screaming at me and telling me, you know, like I'm really a bad influence on American civilization. So... Judging from that, I guess there's some people out there that like me. Has it been a surprise to you, though, that uh, putting out sometimes grim facts of your own life has won you, you know, that much uh, good feeling from the public? Yeah, I, I couldn't have predicted that this was going to happen. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen when I started doing comic books, but I, I just, you know, I had, an, I know I had to make a start. Yeah. Did you make a, a kind of solemn vow never to sugarcoat you know never to give in to what i think would be a temptation for many people to provide a happy ending or provide a a bright ray of light in the midst of life's difficulties well i try not to let's put it that i mean i that that wasn't the first thing i told myself when i knew i was going to be doing comic book stories but uh i you know i the obligatory happy ending has not been one of my favorite literary characteristics you know, I just try and end on a realistic note. I don't want to, you know, depress people all the time either. But, you know, so I, I just end it like, you know, where the event actually ended, you know. You not only avoid happy endings, you seem to avoid closure, the kind of neatly tied up package that a lot of us, you know, are supposed to expect from fiction. Yeah, well, that's that's deliberate because I, you know, I look at my life as one big ongoing process and... I look at my work the same way. You know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Yeah. So yeah. I, I, there's no happily ever after in my stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to go back to your to your youth, which um, for a long time, American Splendor, your autobiographical comic book, focused on your uh, adult life, yeah. what, what was happening then and there. And it took a long time for you to go back to your early years. You finally came out with a book a couple of years ago called right. The Quitter. Right. Which is all about you as, yeah. a, as a young man and a boy. Yeah. It's a... Uh, it's like your work about your adulthood in the sense that it's kind of unsparing when it comes to looking at yourself. In fact, the title, The Quitter, refers to a tendency to uh, to drop out of things if you couldn't be the very best right. at them. Um, there are some memories in the story, in The Quitter, uh, that I would think would be kind of painful um, to go back to. Was that your experience? I mean, we're talking about things like, oh, an incident when um, you were embarrassed by your dad. Who was, yeah. a, who was an immigrant, he was short, and you were a kid, and you didn't want your classmates to see you with him, and you ran away from him. Yeah, right. It seems like I'd be kind of kind of hurt, hurtful to, to talk about. Was it? or It wasn't, because I'd lived with it so long, and I had also told some people about that incident. There's a, a major theme running through the quitter about street fighting. You were a kid who... Um, you were disappointed in yourself a lot when you weren't the absolute star of whatever activity. Right. Yeah. But you did find something you were really good at, which is yeah. punching people's lights out. Yeah, I, yeah. But I just did that, you know, like to gain notoriety and praise. I I wasn't really sadistic or anything like that. I, I you know, just as long as I won... You know, I mean, I didn't care. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I just wanted to win. It seemed like every fight in the uh, in the comic ended with a guy down and uh, bleeding from his face, sometimes in a pool of blood. Well, there were a few fights that, that I had that ended like that. Yeah, there were. And there were a few fights where I socked the guy once and somebody jumped in between us. And and I, I had thrown the only punch, so I won one to nothing. I was happy with that. But I've always had the impression, now, now, Harvey, I don't want to embarrass you by saying this, but underneath it all, that you're a really nice guy, that you really care about people. And um, how is it that you were able to get into this fighting thing where sometimes you even sort of manipulated yeah. circumstances in order to get into, uh, you know, a, yeah. a punch-up with these guys? And then you clobbered them. Um, well, I guess, you know, I wasn't... <laughs> Being very consistent, was I? I mean, uh, yeah, I like to think of myself as a pretty nice guy and, uh, you know, reasonably considerate. And um, I guess, you know, like becoming a big man just took precedent. Um, Harvey, I thought I'd play another little bit from one of the commentaries you did for WKSU in Ohio, public radio station. This one's called Making Money from Film. A cartoonist friend of mine told me a couple of years ago that executives at the movie production company Good Machine liked my writing and were interested in doing a film based on it. My wife and I contacted them, and bang, we had an option deal together in a couple of months, which, if the film got made, would provide me with enough money to retire. Comics are my art form, not film, but money from a movie deal could be so liberating. Now that I've reached retirement age, this film deal seems so crucial and all kinds of things could go wrong. The TV network will take months to write its contract with Good Machine. There are writers and actor strikes looming. I'm sweating it. I feel like a cat's inside me, scratching at my guts. There's an old saying that comes to mind. We are always happiest when we are close to our dreams, but not quite there. We just heard a, an excerpt from a commentary done by my guest Harvey Picar for the radio station WKSU, public radio station in Kent, Ohio, talking about the prospects of a movie based on his American Splendor comic book. And that indeed did come to pass. The movie was made a few years ago starring Paul Giamatti. Uh, remind us who the directors were for that film. Um, Bob Pulcini and Cherry uh, Berman. They're a husband and wife team. And it was a it was a real uh, critical smash. It won awards at uh, Sundance, at uh, Cannes. Is that right? Yeah. The Cannes Film Festival. Did it change your life in the way that you were hoping for? As we heard in that commentary, it certainly got me some money, and the money, you know, certainly provided me with some breathing space. You know, to this day, I'm, I'm wondering if I can, can. You know, I don't I don't have enough income 
from my pension from the federal government and and my social security uh to uh to support myself and my wife so i have to you know be a writer full time and i live in fear that uh, not so much that I, I think i can keep on writing good good works for the foreseeable future but i don't know that people will like them it's funny cuz i think in america there's a a general sort of folk belief that if you're in a big movie, a movie that really succeeds, yeah. you're set for life. That's right, exactly. Or, you know, some people think if you're on a radio show or anything, you know, you get your picture in the paper. That's, you know, kind of naive. You enter the world of celebrity and everything changes. Yeah, well, people have a pretty screwed up view of what celebrity's about. You've always been sort of anti-celebrity. I mean, a guy who was not impressed by celebrities and uh, even disliked the whole concept, I think. Yeah, yeah, largely, yeah. I mean, there are so many people that do so many things well, many of which benefit the, the general public. You know, why single out people in movies and, and uh, you know, or pop music for praise? I like to celebrate, you know, honest and competent garage mechanics. That's who I really like to take my hat off to. Now, the movie was really innovative in the way it mingled a dramatization of your life, starring Paul Giamatti and... Um, Hope Davis. And Hope Davis, yes, thank you. And the real you and some of your friends who were depicted in the movie. The movie would cut between some of the dramatizations to you and other real people from the stories, and you would comment on the movie. We could see how you looked and sounded as opposed to the actors. Yeah, and I was amazed at how innovative the movie was. You know, people who get their books done by film companies, uh, you know, a lot of times are disappointed. And I, you know, I mean, I just kept telling myself that the reason I did this was, you know, to get some money. And, you know, and if it turned out that the movie was lousy, then so be it. But, I mean, it was this extra tremendous bonus that the movie was really superb. And, you know, and helped sell my comic books, where I thought that was just about impossible. The movie depicted you as being um, maybe a little bit skeptical about the whole enterprise? Yeah, well, I didn't know what, what was going to come of it, and I'm... When I don't know what's going to happen, I'm usually pretty skeptical. So it was a really pleasant surprise when you saw the final Yeah, film. it was. It was very, very nice. Now, we were talking a bit about your not really going along with this celebrity culture we have in America. But you, mostly as a result, I think, of the movie, partly as a result of the comic books and appearances on television, are a kind of celebrity. I mean, there's no escaping it, right? I mean, for some people... If you say so. Well, you're bigger than life for some people, which is must be really weird for you. Yeah, it is. It is really weird, and I'm, I haven't allowed myself to accept that because I just can't see it. And also because in my everyday life, you know, people are not throwing themselves at me. I'm, you know, in Cleveland, I pretty much go through the day without having anybody, you know, running up to me and saying, "Say, aren't you the guy that was?" Yeah. Probably your your most famous act of celebrity spurning was the Letterman Show. You had been uh, a guest a number of times, I think, during the 1980s, and um, you were getting increasingly unhappy with the the routine. Yeah, and uh, you brought the whole thing to a, a, a stop one night. What, do you remember what date that was? It, I can remember the year. I think it was. Uh, I think it was 1987. Yeah, 87. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones who actually saw it. I don't know how many people did because um, they pulled this particular broadcast from circulation and never repeated it. Right. Is that because Letterman himself was uh, preventing its release? Yeah, I don't think he wanted it released. I mean, he's into controlling things and, you know, getting things done his way. And if that doesn't happen, I don't think he's too happy. So I thought for, for our listeners who may not have seen that broadcast and uh, for whom getting bootleg copies is not an option, you and I could at least read some of the repartee that transpired that night between you and David Letterman. You wrote it up in a comic book uh, in an issue you called the Letterman Exploitation Issue. So I've got the, got the transcript right here in front of me. 
This begins with you in the green room waiting to go on stage with David Letterman, and he's uh, introducing you. You're listening to this introduction. And he's saying, You know, ladies and gentlemen, when Thoreau wrote that most men lead lives of quiet desperation, he obviously hadn't met our next guest, who happens to lead a life of whining desperation and writes about it in his American Splendor comic books. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Harvey P. Carr. And you're thinking, Whining desperation, huh? You'll pay for that. So you go out on stage, and you start your conversation with David Letterman. Things are uh, pretty testy from the get-go. He's trying to steer the talk to light banter. You're trying to get his goat. And uh, you mentioned your previous appearance on the show, where you had gotten him pretty angry by going on about General Electric, yeah. the, the parent company of NBC, which was, his, which was Letterman's network at the time. Right. You had called them a member of the military-industrial complex, I think, and you had chided Letterman for representing them. And the folks on the show had told you never to, to raise that subject again. But here you were again, and you say... Listen, you were looking at that one story. That's the GE show. You remember that? That was a real memorable moment in TV. I enjoyed it. Did you? Anyway, I wanted to ask you why, on that night... I'm just praying for a terrorist. Any kind of dissident in the audience? Listen, this is your house, David. You should treat me well. You've got this delusion that this is your house. Why don't you treat me well? You think you own the RCA building. Treat me well, David. Is Harvey's nurse in the green room? See if it's time for the medication. You're a cop-out, man. Anyway, I'm serious. I wanted to ask you why. No, wait a minute. Let me show you something. Anyway, I want to ask you why. Why you defended GE. I thought that was really dumb. Because it made you look like a shill for GE. And I was really surprised to hear you do that. First of all, Harvey, what you are saying is not true. Second of all, this is not the place to say it. If you want to talk about this, go somewhere else, because you're not talking about it here on the show. Dave, I... No, 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 Harvey. What you're saying is wrong. It's wrong. I said it looked like you were a shill. That's what I don't understand. Because you wanted laughs that night, and I got you your laughs. See, I had it planned. Harvey, you never planned anything in your life. What did you plan? Your wardrobe? Yeah, I planned it. It's color-coordinated. I got a pair of $75 shoes on, and I'm very hurt because you didn't compliment me on them. These are Rockport walkers. These are in, Dave. Don't worry, I won't come back unless you really ask me. You're not coming back at all. That's all right, I don't care. Because we've given you many, many chances to talk about things that would be of general interest to people. So what? And also to promote your little Mickey Mouse magazine, your little weekly reader. But you've blown every chance you've got. You're a dork, Harvey. Dave, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. And at that point, things pretty much come to a close. What was going on with you that night? Why did you do it? Well, that's all I had to do. I mean, I just, I didn't care about being on the show anymore. I had nothing to lose by getting kicked off the show because I wasn't making good money. I wasn't selling any comic books as a result of being on the show. And I wasn't doing the kind of stuff I'd like to do. So I just decided I would just make it hot for him, you know and maybe make myself a folk hero in the process. <laughs> well, it was interesting because um, David Letterman was really the king of late night at that point, I think. And uh, he had this almost impervious shell of irony around the show and everybody who stepped on it. And you somehow shattered that. Well, I worked real hard. Yeah, had you, uh, had you planned this in advance? Yeah, something like it. I mean, I I didn't know exactly how it was going to go down, but I had planned something like this. Watching it was sort of like watching a uh, a fist come through the TV screen and just sort of break the illusion that surrounds that kind of entertainment. Yeah, it must have shocked some people. It won you some friends, though, I guess. Yeah, it did. Did you ever talk to Letterman about it after that? No. Uh, but because he didn't... I've never talked to Letterman about anything... For any length of time, he he refuses to talk to. He may talk to some guests, but I think in general he he doesn't want to talk to guests. And, you know, and after the show, he just takes off like a shot. Um, you were burning a kind of bridge. You'd been on Letterman like how many times? Well, that was my sixth time, but I wasn't burning any bridges. I I really had nothing to lose. They were paying you how much to go on the show? Oh, a few hundred bucks. And they uh, kind of brought you in initially and expected you to be. Local color, a working class guy from yeah. Cleveland who is going to be sort of funny and sort of quirky and yeah. 
you know, provide the laughs in between the big-name celebrity guests, I guess. Yeah, that was about it. And when I, you know, suggested to him that I maybe, you know, do some other kind of comedy, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, essentially he thought of this, this show as a comedy show, you know, he, he wouldn't hear of it or discuss it with me. You know, and I had some decent ideas. So, I mean, it was like I'm thinking to myself, well, what can you do with this guy? You can't do anything. You can't squeeze anything out of him. You know, you might as well just trash him. Now, a lot of people would have said, Harvey, you're living the American dream. You're on national television, the glory of it. And here you are walking away. Well, I mean, it's got to be more substantial than being on national TV to, you know, interest me. It's got to have money attached to it or, you know, or something, something nice. Just being on TV is no big deal. Um. I'd like you to read a, a little segment from the end of your autobiographical uh, graphic novel, The Quitter, if you would. Okay. In other words, can I make a decent living from here on in? Can I take care of myself and my wife and kid? It's something I always maybe worry about, even if the books I'm slated to do for current publishers sell real well. I've always dreamed of being able to relax and feel trouble-free, for long stretches of time. I'm 65 now. Will it ever happen? I think you, you in one of your, your comics, you, you write, uh, maybe you'll get a big break and um, things will all work out. You can stop worrying. And the image in that shows you sitting somewhere, I think, on a beach in a, in a beach chair. Is that really the life you want? I'd yeah. like to relax, that's all. On a beach, not on a beach, just as long as I can relax. And stop putting all this pressure on myself and driving myself nuts. You know, I would really like that. Well, I, I hope that comes true, Harvey. I really appreciate you spending this time with us today. It's my pleasure. Harvey Picar, who died this past week at the age of 70. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Next, another conversation about art and life and life as art, this time with the writer Jonathan Ames. And there are a couple of Harvey Picar connections here, too. I spoke to Jonathan a year ago about his graphic novel titled The Alcoholic, the movie adaptation of his novel The Extra Man, and his HBO comedy series, Bored to Death. Well, well, Jonathan, um, let's talk about the, the, uh, the graphic novel first, and then um, I'll ask you a little bit about the HBO show and related matters. Um, so we've got a character here named um, Jonathan A., mm -hmm. the alcoholic of the title. He... Um, he looks uncannily like you. Uncannily? Well, he, my friend's a good artist. No, but this go is on. Dean Haspiel, the illustrator? Yeah. Oh, he's a friend of yours. Yeah, Dean Haspiel. So did he come up with this idea, or um, did you? Well, it, it was Dean's idea to collaborate. Um, and he want, we've been friends since about 2001, and he kept always saying, we got to work together, we got to work together. And... I I wasn't a big graphic novel person, and, you know, but so I was sort of resistant for a few years, but then finally one day I went in with him to DC Comics. He had um, recently finished or was still working on Harvey P. Carr's book, The Quitter, and, you know, just wanted me to meet his editor, and the editor wanted me to do a book also. And then right over lunch, I got an idea for... Um, like a six-part adult graphic series, graphic comic series. Yeah. Um, so I suddenly over lunch had this notion of like a six-part comic series about an alcoholic with each episode ending in a cliffhanger. Like there's the alcoholic <laughs> hanging from the fire escape. There's the alcoholic running down the road in his boxer shorts. And uh, I ended up pitching that to DC and then they... They liked it, but because of my reputation as a novelist, they wanted me to do it as a graphic novel. So then I kind of expanded the whole thing. Um, it became a much larger story, you know, like mm -hmm. basically the story of a life, not just, you know, and it became less silly in a way. Mm -hmm. not, so, so this is DC Comics. This is the, uh, you know, this is the company that gave us Batman and Superman, and now, now the alcoholic, yeah. um, a different kind of hero. Um, yeah, well, I guess he's a hero. He tries. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like, I do read reviews or 
you know, most of which are in the form of blogs or, um, or you know, Amazon things. And I guess a lot of people see the character as, but as you know, as self-absorbed or whining. And I, you know, I'm not surprised by that characterization. But I feel, although I haven't read the book lately, he, the character is always very aware of that. And you know, we all struggle, and so this is just someone talking about it, not, you know, I didn't feel like he was whining or self-pitying, you know, he he tries not to fall into the traps he does, you know, so I thought that self-awareness kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. saved mm-hmm. it, but so my whole point is, like, so he's not quite a hero, uh, and certainly people that don't like the book, they would just think he's self-pitying, but he's heroic, perhaps, in that he keeps trying. Now, now he uh, is named Jonathan A., and he looks just like you. Yes. And he shares um, almost countless details of his biography with you. Yeah, but so many, a lot of differences, though, too. Well, nonetheless, I mean, you, you've got to expect that a lot of us readers will just think he is you. Um, yeah, a lot of people do. Talk us out of that. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Talk us out of it. I mean, you did have a drinking problem. Uh, I don't. Who said that? Who said that? Oh, I think you told me that once. <laughs> hey, off the record. <laughs> um, but we all have phases in our lives. You know what I mean? Um, and what was once a drinking problem at a certain age, I don't know. Everybody changes, you know. And Buddhism, they say, you know, man rocks across the room and comes back. He's a different person. So for me, nothing is constant too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dissolving every day as opposed to evolving. I've played in all my fiction and non-fiction with myself as a character or versions of myself. Um, I guess I'm playing with that frisson. When people read fiction, they're like, that's really you. Mm-hmm. And then when you write non-fiction, they're like, you didn't do that, did you? It's like <laughs> this weird thing. So I called it fiction, yet I had them look just like me and had them nearly have my name. But A could stand for alone or anyone, or I used to have better answers to that, or alcoholic, or, you know, and I like the Kafka-esque nature of it. But, I mean, to be perfectly frank, like, I didn't go to Yale, the character does. Oh, yeah, you, writes, you went to Princeton, come on. Hey, they're very different. <laughs> Ask anyone who went to the two schools. Um, let's see, his parents are not alive. My parents, thankfully, are alive. Um, I never was, I never went out. I never went without a drink for 13 years. He does. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he's a lot different from me. Yeah. Um, certain events I recreated changed. I once did work at an all-girls school for a month, but I never was fired. He gets fired. You, you never had the orgy that got him fired? I just said I never got fired. <laughs> Okay. Well, let me uh, let me pursue my um, really obtuse literal mindedness just for a, a little bit longer and ask about a couple other events. Okay. Uh, you know, possible parallels between you and Jonathan A. Mm-hmm. Did you ever wake up in a station wagon with a diminutive elderly lady who who lived in the station wagon with her cats coming onto you? Um, I didn't get into the station wagon. Aha! Uh-huh. But if I you had, glided into it, but backed <laughs> off, saying, "I don't think." I can have sex in there, you know, it's too small. But the fact that she was so <laughs> tiny, I could have had sex with her in there. I mean, she was could have had sex with her in a telephone booth that they still existed. Well, right. back then they probably did. But, <laughs> so, no, I was, but I felt bad. I said, I'm sorry. You know, I met her at a bar, and I didn't realize how tiny she was. And Not that the tiny, I don't know, tininess wasn't a factor. I, I guess I sobered up once we stepped outside and, the silliness of it hit me, or, or no, the, I don't know, something hit me. So, did you did you um, like Jonathan A. Binge and barf your way through uh, your Princeton years? Um, I did vomit a fair amount. Mm-hmm. I don't think I vomited as much as he did, though. Um, but I, there was definitely, yeah, there was a lot of vomiting, which is upsetting. You managed to uh, to be pretty productive, though. At the same time, fencing team. Uh, well, you... not really. I only fenced for two years, and then and I took a year off, and then I was disqualified by the NCAA, so I didn't really ever fence again. Why was that? Because um, I appeared as a 
male model in an advertisement, and some guys on the Columbia team spotted it and reported me. I didn't know, you know, who knew that this was illegal? Um, it was meant so that people like, you know, big college basketball stars wouldn't be doing sneaker ads. Oh, you were, you were um, accused essentially of, of going professional. Mm-hmm. I mean, getting money for being a, an athlete. I know, but it was it was absurd though because it wasn't like I was wearing a fencing outfit. I was in a pair of underwear. Well, we should say that this is, I mean, this is one of the many sort of remarkable things that you've done in your life. You were sort of recruited to appear in one of those Calvin Klein ads with the the famous photographer uh, Bruce Weber taking well, the pictures. Well, I wasn't recruited for a Calvin Klein ad. I was uh, Bruce Weber did want to take my picture, and he did take my picture, and he included me in a show he did on athletes, in fact, though that wasn't the thing that got me in trouble with the NCAA. Um, and so I did that, and it was actually ended up in the Whitney Museum in 1985, a picture of me on a swing, half naked. Um, so let's correct the record. You weren't in Calvin Klein ads, but Bruce no. Weber, who he of the famous Calvin Klein underwear ads, did snap you in your uh, skivvies. Yes, and... Uh-huh. And he later wanted, I think, to include me in some ads, but by then I'd fallen off the radar because I quit being a model, um, particularly after I'd gotten my nose broken in a bar fight in Paris in some kind of Hemingway phase when I was 20. Uh, Like like Jonathan A? I like how my life sounds so romantic. (laughs) In fact, we're going to talk about romance. As I wake up here. Romanticism, uh, yeah, is a big theme, I think, and I want to talk about that. It, it, but speaking of interesting coincidences, Bruce Weber later made a movie called Broken Noses. I know, about I know. And guys I, boxing in their underwear, at least part of it had guys boxing in their underwear. Uh, and you would have been perfect for that. Since you boxed, uh, since you uh, didn't mind uh, stripping down to your underwear for photographs, and you had a broken nose. I know. Well, he and I have, you know, we share something. I, I've run into him a little bit later in life, but maybe I'll run into him again. I think I sent him one of my books at one point. Uh-huh. Um, well, one last question about parallels between you and Jonathan A. There's an incident in, in um, The Alcoholic, the graphic novel we're talking about, um, where Jonathan A. goes to dinner with a group of people, including Monica Lewinsky, mm-hmm. who orders a dish that um, unfortunately recalls her relationship with President Clinton, mm-hmm. embarrassing everybody at the dinner uh, except her. Uh, mm-hmm. Did that actually happen? That's that's um, I'll let uh, readers discover for themselves what I'm talking about, but that's that's quite remarkable because, I mean, either she's totally unself-aware um, of her reputation, or she was playing with her reputation and, and sort of messing with all you guys. Mm, I don't. I don't. I think it was neither. I think, you know, <clears throat> I think she's innocent in a sense. You know what I mean? Why yeah. shouldn't someone think a kielbasa looks delicious? You know what I mean? Especially if you've never seen one before. Just, You know what I mean? You don't, I mean, rarely does one see a hot dog served on a plate, kind of, you know, with a little slices along the way, I guess, to give it, allow it to breathe. I don't know. You oh. know what I mean? I I think she should be allowed to think, but, it, you know, we were all just so hyper aware of who she was or, or what she had done. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, of course it's innocent to, to you know, in the sense to, to simply go where your appetites lead you, but... Um, but the fact that everybody was thinking along those lines, and just about everybody, I think, who meets Monica Lewinsky probably does sooner or later think of those things. Um, you know, and, and that that didn't um, deter her. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad she doesn't um, censor herself. I don't know. I, you know, I in no way, I hope that, I mean, I put that incident in because it was pretty remarkable. And, um, I just, um, you know, I just feel bad for someone like that who, you know, not so, and I don't know, had her life trashed yeah, in a yeah. way, but she seems pretty resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, I, you know, as best I could, I wanted the portrayal of her in that to not be mocking, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It more had to do with my oversensitivity her history, and I don't know that everyone else was as freaked out by her ordering that. I One other person, or t- two other people at least have confirmed to me that they were also freaked out <laughs> by it. Um, the guy whose kielbasa it was, I later told that story on stage, and I'd forgotten whose kielbasa it was, but it, 
It was uh, the writer David Rakoff. Oh, you see, I I thought that she had ordered, but but it was David Rakoff, which makes it even funnier because we all anybody who knows David Rakoff knows that he has an excellent sense of humor. Yeah, no, no. It, I think it's clear in the piece. It was the person next to her ordered the kielbasa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, she I just... looked at that person who's playing. Goes, what is that? That looks delicious, you know. <laughs> and okay, well. And then I mentioned that on stage one time in an improv moment. David Rakoff was there. We we're part of the same show, and and he got on stage and said, "Yes, I just want to confirm that that story is true." And actually, it was me who ordered the kielbasa. <laughs> Um, well, you know, in 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 the story, um, Jonathan A is so embarrassed that he he quote astrally projects himself onto the ceiling in yeah, order to survive right, yeah. the moment, uh, you know, just sort of out of body, you know, embarrassment. Um, and it's interesting because uh, you have revealed so much of your life, including a lot of sexual stuff, um, sexual adventures and misadventures, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal episodes, the kind of things that a lot of people keep private. Mm-hmm. Um, but but. Um, you're not terribly embarrassed about that, or are you? Um, well, sometimes I am in retrospect in the moment. But what, I mean, what's your point? I was embarrassed for her. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm just interesting because you're a guy who who seems very uninhibited and not easily embarrassed. Um, and and yet, when it came to her, you were you were very sensitive. Well, yeah, I'm more protective of others than myself. Uh huh. Uh huh. I I've always lived by the credo. Uh, do to yourself what you wouldn't do to others. <laughs> <laughs> that does uh, that does sum up a, a lot of the um, the bits of, of your life that I've picked up from reading your essays and and sometimes uh, fictionalized versions of what you've done. Um, you know, in addition to 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 drinking, in fact, I would almost say um, more important than drinking in, in the alcoholic is 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 the theme of love. Love, love, yeah, and, and yeah. frustrated love, uh, or or complicated love. Um, I guess um, I wouldn't disagree with that. I guess in my mind, what I if I was to think about the book, I thought it was more about loss. Mm-hmm. Love and loss go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, the character has a number of, of tortured relationships with women. Has a really tragic uh, relationship with a best friend who he he genuinely loves. Uh, but the best friend turns out to be gay, and that causes complications, and um, they go their separate ways. Uh, and then there's um, maybe the most fully realized love in the story is that with um, Jonathan A. and his, his great aunt, Sadie, yeah. uh, of which you write, um, you know, sometimes they were too close, almost Oedipal, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah, they was a little too close, or she would reveal things. Yeah, it's not so much like too close in a bad way, but just you know, but in some yeah. Well, well, love is obviously a big love and loss are are big currents running through a lot or or all of your work. You know, your one of your memoirs is called "What's Not to Love." Mm-hmm. Um, what what has love been for you? If I could ask such a, a big and vague question. Well, I guess I always feel like I don't love enough, or I feel, you know, that even the people I love, like, you can't love them enough, and I, or time is racing by, you know, and so, I don't know, or I think love somehow makes me feel some essential loneliness, hmm. you know, that, like, never fully known by another person or can fully know another person. But, so, that's maybe some existential feeling about love, but love, I think, translates for me into um, paying attention and, you know, looking after and, you know, giving. Um, So, I guess that's how I love. That sounds like a very, um, you know, healthy idea of love. Thank you. I don't know if it is or not. If it's unhealthy, maybe I'll start coughing. <laughs> well, well, I'm just thinking. Um, nonetheless, again, in the in the bits of of uh, autobiography that you've revealed in your writings, and also in in your characters' lives, love is always well. It doesn't seem to work out too well most of the time. 
why do you think that is, given that your idea of what love should be or what, what it is seems seems viable to me? Well, that's because I just came up with that right now. <laughs> when I was writing the books, I didn't know that. That's because you asked me the question. I had to think about it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, I don't really remember what I've written, kind of. Um, you just sort of move on, like clothes. You, let's say you're a real slob take clothes off and you put new clothes on and and the clothes you take off you just leave behind. That's kind of like what books are for me or things I've said. I almost forget them as soon as I say them. So I don't, I think, but if I, if I don't look back at the books, yeah, I think people are always seeking love, they're seeking connections. They make connections, though. And The Extra Man, my novel, the character really loves his roommate and they have friendship, and that's love. And in my first novel, the character loves his childhood friend, and that story kind of continues in The Alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So I don't see that these these are failed loves, you know. Maybe they're realistic portraits. Mm-hmm. I haven't written a lot about romantic love, I guess, or the women in my life too much, because um, some of that stuff maybe too private, or, or I don't know, maybe someday I will. I always loved that Bukowski book, Women. Hmm. Um, so that's maybe more cataloging of sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, so I don't know, that's such a big question, I can't give definitive answers. No, yeah, no, I know. I don't know, could maybe the Dalai Lama... <laughs> Well, again, uh, you know, I find myself in the position of, of, of sort of saying to you patterns that I've picked up in your writing, and, and you just profess to, to not remember and maybe to slough off um, each work as you finish it, just like an old uh, outfit. Still, here I go. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about romanticism and masculinity and how you and your characters were heavily under the spell of kind of archetypal men uh, in American culture from, you know, detectives, uh, Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, uh, Hemingway, Kerouac, boxers and other he-men of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've, you've done your share of, uh, of, of exploring that, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you got in bar fights, as you said. Uh, you, you have boxed. Um, you've done other masculine, adventurous things. And then there's that other side of you, um, you know, that ha- is kind of self-mocking and, and makes fun of foibles and, and, and screw-ups and things like that. And I'm just thinking, you know, this, this one masculine idea is sort of has been the domain, you know, pretty much in American culture of waspy types, of Gentile types. And this other style of self-mockery, of neurosis, um, you know, making fun of oneself has, you know, been something that, that Jewish writers and comedians have done particularly well. You are Jewish. Um has that has that sort of waspy versus Jewish, you know, style? Are you consciously aware of that, or is that has that played a part in in how you tackle these things? Um, well, I guess at different times. I mean, when I was writing the Extra Man, um, I had, a, I guess, a fascination with the externals of wasp culture, since I wouldn't necessarily know the internals. Uh-huh. Um, Despite having gone to Princeton, huh? Yeah, I mean, Princeton really, I must have spurred that on, you know, just the black and white photos, the campus, um, and then living in the town, I I kind of got a mentor who was an old Philadelphia blue blood wasp, and I, I just sort of loved his stories of, you know, characters and the way he dressed. I guess he became a little bit of a father figure and I began to copy him. And then and then the literature I was reading fused it even more. And I was living in the town of Princeton and was bored and so developed this whole fantasy life of myself as a waspy young gentleman. But then I knew it was a fantasy because I was a Jewish man at the end of the 20th century and I was Tending to live in the past in my mind or something a little, just you know, not all the time. But so, yeah, manhood, cultural identity. I've been 
messing around with that stuff. Um, but I'm not a brainiac writer like Jonathan Franzen, who totally understands <laughs> from a 360-degree angle what he's doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm more of an improvisational clown who hops on stage and then wants to get backstage and <laughs> chase the showgirls. And, you know what I mean? And kind of maybe didn't prepare enough for going on stage, but he, he did have a uh, I think I know hope, he... hope to give a good show. So he gave a good show, <laughs> and then he was... I mean, my real life has been... I, I was... Grandiose, grand, uh, grandiosely, I, with grandiosity, I kind of stated the other night, I said, my life is the biggest piece of art I've been working on. I mean, all the things that I get into at night, and I'll never write down, but it's been much more exciting and fun than anything I've written. <laughs> but, um, so, so mixed in there is, who am I, what am I, you know, Macho, feminine, you know, help, you know. So. <laughs> um, well, well, this uh, obviously the, these questions continue in your latest venture, um, the uh, the TV series you're writing right now for mm-hmm. HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about this. Uh, what's it called? What's the premise? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, it's called Bored to Death. Uh, it's based on a short story I wrote um, for McSweeney's, which comes out of San Francisco. Yeah. And um, and uh, that was about a writer who puts an ad on Craigslist posing as a private detective because he loves the work of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. That, and Hammett set most of his mystery fiction in San Francisco. Yeah. But um, so then, I don't know, I won't go through the whole Hollywood process, but so basically... That short story became the inspiration for a much more comedic version of the essential premise of a writer who has an ad on Craigslist advertising as an unlicensed private detective. And so it's now a series, or is going to be a series, um, coming out either in the summer or fall, uh, starring Jason Schwartzman as Jonathan Ames. As Jonathan um, Ames. Oh, my gosh. Ames, yeah. I gave him the full <laughs> last name this time. It's getting crazier and crazier what's happening. Um, we should say Jason Schwartzman, uh, he of uh, Rushmore, I Heart Huckabees, uh, Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, and he's a wonderful musician. People should get his albums, uh, Coconut Records and Davey. He puts out his own albums. He writes all the lyrics and the music, and they're really beautiful. A mix of, like, Elliot Smith and the Beatles. I mean, he's very talented. He's a wonderful, wonderful young man. Um, Ted Danson's in the show playing an older mentor, writer figure. Um, uh, Comedian Zach Galifianakis is in it. They're kind of like the three main people. And it's a fascinating new enterprise for me. It kind of reminds me of I used to have to write a column every two weeks, Yeah, which was a very um, set sort of form, you know. And now, same thing with having to write these episodes. Um, uh, though I do have uh, some other writers now helping me, but um, the bulk of the burden is on me. And but I have to meet every director, every actor, every costume. It's pretty, very demanding. So that's that. I also want to mention to you, um, uh, my novel, The Extra Man, is going to become a movie. They start shooting in a few weeks if everything works out. And uh, that's based on a screenplay I wrote that uh, is all, was also written uh, subsequently um, by the directors, um, Robert Pulcini and Sherry Berman, who did American Splendor, which is you know an interesting connection because my friend, the artist Dean Haspiel, has drawn for Harvey P. Carr. Um, and so Kevin Klein plays the lead and Paul Dano plays the young man. Of course, is based heavily on me, but uh, and John C. Riley's in it, and Katie Holmes. So anyway, a lot going on. Gee whiz! Well, um, you know, in uh, American Splendor, uh, Paul Giamatti studied the person he was going to portray, Harvey Pekar, mm-hmm. met him, so on and so forth. Has Jason Schwartzman, who's playing Jonathan Ames, has he been studying you? 
Uh, he did. We spent about a month before we shot the pilot. And I mean, but I told him, you know, the character has my name, but is, <laughs> you know, is like is his invention. But but he did sprinkle me in there a little bit, though. People were worried he'd be too much like me and have no affect to his personality and stuff. But um, and but yeah, he's very much his own character. He's made it his own guy. But did he shadow you or do something to? Uh... Well, we just hung out. We're, we've become friends, so we just did a lot of hanging out. We. We went over the script again and again. Um, I kind of showed him the world of Brooklyn, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've—I think you've coined a term uh, that describes um, sort of the feel of um, of this series for HBO. Uh, noirotic. No, noirotic, yeah. That's a great one. Yeah, and then I came across something else. I, how I once described myself. My personality was comic depressive. <laughs> so I gotta start using that one. That's pretty good. It sounds like uh, bored to death. The HBO series it does does this again. Gets into this area where you've got the uh, you know sort of waspy or, or gentile you know detective figure meeting up with a, a Jewish character who's got the neurotic thing happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jason isn't too neurotic in it, but he, but yeah, but. I, He's a little, you know, he's very self-conscious, which always, I guess, comes across in life as neurotic. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, and maybe unfairly so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when is the series uh, going to hit the hit the tube? I'm not entirely sure, either the summer or the fall. Wow, that's incredible. That's very exciting. Yeah. And yeah. I have a new book coming out in the summer. Called? Uh, the Double Life is Twice as Good. And this is a memoir again? Uh, memoir and fiction. It'll mm-hmm. have the original Bored to Death short story. So it's, it's everything, it's all the pieces I've written probably since the last book came out. So roughly, which last prose book, uh, that book came out in 2006. And, a, and so I think this new book is everything I've written from 2005 to 2008. There's anything from 2008 in there. Um, luckily, it was enough for a book. Mm. Now, now, uh, you know, in your a lot of your um, essays, you write about again adventures and misadventures, um, which I, I mean, I guess you would have had anyway, even if you weren't a writer. But they they certainly um, give you a lot to write about, and some of them are pretty um, well semi dangerous. I mean, there's been. Um, you know, pretty bruising boxing matches. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to Afghanistan like a real writer. I, I mean, I wish I had the guts to do that, but my parents would be really upset. <laughs> well, I don't know how many war correspondents would have, as you did, um, you know, answer a personal ad from some odd guy who wanted to... I know, but they're doing more noble things. <laughs> well, so there is a war correspondent <laughs> who really does like my work, and I'm like, dude... You're the one putting your life on the line. I'm just being perverted. <laughs> I should finish that story, though. You answered a personal ad from some guy who wanted to box mm-hmm. a stranger in his apartment. The loser uh, in a hotel room. In a hotel room, yeah. And the loser would have to perform an act I can't even describe on radio, and you did it. I mean, you actually did the boxing. You you won, so you didn't have to do anything. Yeah, no, uh, I skedaddled. You skedaddled, but still, I mean, I would have been. Not only does it sound strange and twisted, but it sounds potentially dangerous. Who knows what a character like that would end up doing, you know? So I know, but I, the Tennessee Williams thing should be on my grave. Which you is? Know, I relied on the comfort of strangers or something, or on the kindness. I relied on I was, the kind, I was going to kindness, say kindness of strangers. Strangers, and they've been strange, have been very kind to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let me just ask one one last question. Um, you have been again uh, putting your bits of your life out in, in various forms for quite a while now, and not just in novels and your own autobiographical writings, but um, now they found their way into a comic book. Uh, there have been performances. You're a performance artist, storyteller. Yeah, I got all this stuff on you, the Moth on iTunes. I think or that's. Something. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, musicians have have uh, written you up in song. There's the rock band, the National. There's also one Ring oh, yeah, Zero. Oh yeah, heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, their album Boxer is based on you, right? Oh, I don't know about that, but the second song of the album has a line from the Extra Man, and 
And I, I, at one point, I heard they were totally acknowledging me at concerts, and then I did briefly meet the lead singer, and really nice guy. I happen to really like that band. Um, yeah, and, and, and One Ring Zero did a good song based on one of your stories. Well, I wrote the lyrics. And they did a great tune. Yeah, and yeah. you know, there was a song, I think, called Jonathan by this band called Mimi Ferocious. <laughs> you should check it out. And it's all about, and it won, like, some kind of, you know, major top 40 best alternative hit of, like, 2004 or something. Um, wow. Check it out, Mimi Ferocious. And it's definitely based on you. Oh, yeah, it's like all about reading my stuff in the New York press back in the day uh, before uh. the blog took over the world. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that should be a movie. The blog! Instead <laughs> <laughs> of the blob. Um, so, what was my point? Oh, yeah, I like that song, though. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, in a flattering way. It's, you should hear it, though. It's got good lyrics. It says... He says he's ugly, but I think he's beautiful, something like that. So so you've, I mean, fable song, story, TV show now, and a movie. Um, has all of this changed your the way you feel uh, about yourself or the way you feel as you go through life, or is, has it really had little impact? Little impact. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did get out of credit card debt about Eighteen, two years ago, that was really nice because all of adulthood, I just kind of carried around like a goiter, like debt. That, you know what I mean? To yeah. survive as an artist. Yeah. So I have been doing better as an artist for whatever reason, and so that's nice not to have debt. Um, um, no, my sense of self. Well, like I said, I'm always changing. I'm enjoying my adventures. Um. I'm still pretty scared. Um, you know, the more I wake up, the more I feel like I'm dreaming something cheesy like that. Mm, that's not so cheesy. Yeah. Jonathan, being honest isn't cheesy. Oh, well, thank you. You're a nice guy. I mean, <laughs> I met you um, in San Francisco several years ago. I think I was on a book tour, or I don't know what I was doing, but you had me read something... And you, I don't know, you had me read a couple of things, and you picked out these really good passages, and then they, they became the staples of what I read from my own book. So you really directed me nicely. Very, I appreciate you, I don't know, I guess taking me seriously, and, and yeah, so thank you. Well, Jonathan, you don't even need to thank me. I mean, uh, thank you. Well, I mean, it's not every day someone, you know, I don't know, you know, I appreciate it. Well, I think what I was picking up on in that passage, if I remember right, was a kind of tenderness that I think is is um, a really important part of your writing. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Book Forum has asked me to be part of a reading. I'm to read for five minutes, and I'm going to read that passage. Like You totally pointed out to me a passage of my own book that makes for a perfect little short reading on love. Well, I, I remember the passage very well. I think it's um, it's it's incredibly touching and, and true and... Um, I think uh, every, most human beings should be able to connect with it quite well. And it's not, by the way, about romantic love. It's about just a, a, a more general kind of love toward friends and family members. Yeah, it's just about, I think, the one of the phrases, like, I don't know, just for an eyelash of time, he saw someone in their totality and felt this overwhelming love for them. That happened to me once. It was actually with my older mentor figure. He, he must have parted, and, and I turned back and saw him about to cross the street. And I just felt such a love for him, but he was already gone for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and there was just no way to run up and say, I love you. I don't know. It was weird. Well, I now that person is dead, and... I I wish I wish I'd been more present towards the end of their life. You know, we kind of drifted apart the way people do. Mm. Mm. You've you've remained uh, extremely close um, to your your great aunt. Yeah. Uh, who again is fictionalized in in the alcoholic, but mm -hmm. but um, who's been a real character in your life. Yeah, she's good to me. Yeah. I was wearing one 
sweaters last night, and this woman who owns a local bar or restaurant said, who made that sweater for you? My, I said, my great aunt. And the thing is, uh, she wouldn't even remember now how to knit, but she still recognizes the sweaters when she sees them. Uh-huh. Um, Her birthday's coming up. She's going to be 97. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm sorry. I just cursed. You can... No, no. We'll, we'll deal with that. That's cool. I was wondering, though, you know, you, you, I know you have a following, and you're probably recognizable to a number of people on the streets of New York, but you're a guy who can still live pretty anonymously uh, mm-hmm. in many parts of the country. I'm not sure, being the writer and creator of an HBO series... Or having a movie based on your book will change that, but it does seem like you're going to be vaulted to yet another level of fame. Is that something that's exciting or, or scary, or both? Well, I don't know. Fame, <laughs> celebrity, um, <you> celebrity. Know, <laughs> and as a writer, you know, you aren't recognized. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I um. I don't know. I mean, maybe when I was younger, I really wanted to be known as a writer. and But then I think somehow the book business shattered those illusions. And, and at some point, I just started just tripping along or something. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, novelists, you know, pure and simple, aren't, you know, they, they surely aren't the, the, the kind of towering figures they were. 50, 60 years ago in American culture. Yeah, maybe that's partly it, but not that I wanted to be a towering figure. I guess I wanted to be able to survive, and it became clear it was very hard to survive writing books. Yeah, yeah, so you've certainly found a way around that, huh? Uh, I guess I am doing better. It could all go away in a moment. So, but, you know... I don't know. I don't want to think about things too much. Well, well, Jonathan, I guess I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. But um... all right. And I often say when I part from people, but with you, it makes even more sense. But so I'll say it. So maintain radio contact. Oh, I'd love to. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Jonathan Ames, and here's Jonathan reading that passage that he just mentioned from his novel Wake Up, Sir. The book pays tribute to the Jeeves and Wooster stories of P. G. Woodhouse. And there is a butler named Jeeves, though he may exist only in the mind of the protagonist named Alan. This recording of Jonathan is from an interview I did with him in 2004. It's fairly self-explanatory, but it's a moment where my character Alan has come upon Jeeves, and, and, and Jeeves is making Alan's bed, and Jeeves doesn't hear him come into the room. And Alan is sort of struck by the, his feelings of love for Jeeves. Um, so I'll, I'll read this now. And and he says that he almost felt like crying, and then and then he tries to explain why he felt like crying. You see, every now and then I glimpse a person in my life for just an eyelash of time, and the dearness of this other human being, in this instance Jeeves, strikes me as a revelation, and my love for them becomes so obvious and clear, not obscured by judgments or fears or distractions, the rush of life, and it's a very beautiful feeling, and I'd like to tell the person, but I'm not sure I can express it. Maybe it would frighten them, or maybe it will frighten me to say it. Maybe it will sound hollow and false, and right next to this feeling of my love for them, like something across a breach, is the fragility of it all, the mortality of it all, the hopelessness of it all, and I sense the coming loss before it has even happened, and then usually the mind clouds over, and I'm back to pressing on to the next event. It's all very confusing. One of my problems is that I mix up love and pity. I can't really distinguish the two, but maybe they do go hand in hand, because soon as you love someone, you don't want them to feel pain, but you know they will. You see the tenuous illusions they surround themselves with to keep going, how easily they could be hurt and crushed, and so you pity them, in the same way that deep down you pity yourself for the very same reasons. Regardless of how gloomy it all is, I should tell people I love them, but I don't do it nearly enough. When I was living in Princeton, I had a friend who was dying from a brain tumor, and he knew he only had about six months to live, and on the phone one day he said to me in lieu of goodbye, I love you. 
It wasn't going to be our last phone call, and I wasn't his closest friend by any means, but I could hear in his voice that he was going to say this now to everyone. There was no need any more to hold back. I thought I should adopt the same policy with the people in my life, but I wasn't able to, though to my friend I could say it whenever we spoke over the next few months until he died. Jonathan Ames, his HBO comedy series, Bored to Death, kicks off its second season in September. And the movie, The Extra Man, based on his novel of the same name, hits theaters in the next couple of weeks. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been The 7th Avenue Project. I'll return in exactly one week. In the meantime, you can visit our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. 